Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. My name is Stephen Backhouse. Welcome to part two of our series looking at White Tears. You'll remember from the previous episode that when I teach and talk about matters of justice and injustice, I often cry. Now, I'm a white man, and I have found that when I cry, I often get rewarded by audiences and by my listeners after the fact. People write to me or speak to me as if I've done something good. Now, I hasten to add, my tears are not intended to manipulate anyone. I never intentionally put them on. I never use tears to try and make a point. They do come naturally to me. They are genuine. However, I have also noticed that there is a difference between people of color and white people when it comes to the reaction to white tears. In my reading and my research, I realized that there is a pattern here. White tears are not always accepted at face value by every audience. A lot of times, white tears are themselves weaponized against the people who white people are oppressing. Other times, they are used as a way to get around injustice without having to actually deal with it. And of course, sometimes, they are genuine, frustrated responses to an intolerable situation. I think it's a subject worth looking at, because I think it opens up windows and doorways into situations and ideas that we all live with every day, but have rarely looked at closely. In the last episode, I sought out friends and colleagues, voices who I respect, asking them what did they feel and how did it impact them when they were in the presence of white tears. Today, we continue our exploration. I'll be talking to professionals, experts, scholars, and academics who have put real work into the whole idea of crying, why humans cry, why white people cry, what it might mean, and what we can do about it. We begin today's episode down a crackly line from Glasgow with a clinical lecturer in neurology. My name is Dr. John Goodfellow, and I work as a consultant neurologist at the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow. Can you tell, start to tell me the story What's happening to a human body when it cries, and why does it cry? And the question of, you know, why do we cry is, is a very interesting and intriguing one. And interestingly, neurologists often get involved with such questions when things go wrong. And so we often see it from a slightly different perspective and often don't get to grips with the, the normal processes. Crying uh, is often sort of seen alongside other 
involuntary emotional expression disorders. The commonest scenario that I would see an individual with uh, sort of crying related behaviour disorder would be something that is known as, it goes by different names, so pathological laughing and crying. A kind of more technical name would be pseudobulbar affect. And this describes a phenomenon whereby people have this quite distressing experience where they will cry uncontrollably in a context that doesn't seem to trigger. There's no obvious trigger. And they don't have the emotional attached to the crying behaviour. So they will find themselves, you know, weeping and crying, but they don't feel sad. Okay. So that's the pathology. Why would a, a person cry if they feel sad? Physically, what what the tears and, and sadness and the emotional sadness? Is there any do you have any sense of the connection? Well, I think that the the pathology that we see in people allows us to distinguish sort of two main parallel control circuits of of crying. So there is a sort of basic fundamental network of cells and neurons and and muscles that immediately directly control facial expression and tear production. And then in addition to that, there seems to be a second level of control of that circuit. And the higher level of control regulates the where and the when and the why of crying. And so you can tease out these different functions, and that allows us to see that crying and and laughter uh, as well both have a very much a social function. And so the actual physical effects on your own body are are not really they're trivial. You know, you don't gain anything physiologically by by crying. It's the effect on others primarily. And so. When we see people with this pathological crying, this this pseudobulbar affect, the thing that strikes us about it is that people are crying out out with of a context where that seems appropriate. And so that offers an insight. The the very observation of that phenomenon highlights the fact that there are contexts where it seems appropriate to to cry. Humanly speaking, do most human cultures cry at the same kinds of things? Do we know anything about that? That's a very good question, Stephen. I, I won't. Uh, I won't pretend to have studied that extensively. <laughs> Certainly within my practice, you know, it seems universal across different types of people, different, um, you know, different people groups and social cultural groups within within my practice. Um, it's, yeah, I would say that seems pretty similar. But it's a uniquely human uh, activity to cry. To, to cry and actually secrete tears is, is uniquely human. There's no other... Uh, species, I, I believe, that does that. Some, you know, dogs will pine, won't they? They'll look at you with big eyes and pine, um, but they won't cry. Monkeys, some types of, of monkeys can can laugh and exhibit sort of laughing expressions and they'll, they'll tickle one another, but they don't cry. So it's, crying is a uniquely human phenomenon. Can you speculate at all what why tears coming out of your eyes would serve any kind of the social function or the physiological function? Like what? What is it doing for us when when we cry? Just putting on a sad face isn't enough. I need to cry. Well, it's hard to cry, isn't it, voluntarily? It's very difficult to do that. I think it's a much more um, raw, genuine expression than facial grimacing. Sure, there's you know if there are many actors who who learn how to cry and develop that skill, 
but most of us, I think, struggle to on-demand express tears. So I think the social function is certainly to signal, you know, a high degree of distress and unhappiness. And authentically, yeah. you can't fake it, really. Yeah, well, you can, but it takes either a certain type of psychopathy or, or you know, a unique skill or setting and acting. You know, it's socially acceptable to fake cry to, you know to cry when you're an actor that, that, that socially acceptable function to do that um but if you discover your colleague at work has learned perfectly how to cry on demand it, it leaves you feeling slightly uneasy about their level of manipulation and control so i think um but i think that the shedding of tears is a you know a unique sign of authenticity and and, and the depth of the feeling why is it so much connected to injustice? I'm thinking of like the little kid who cries when their toy is taken away from them or me who cried in the face of this kind of huge social injustice that I couldn't do anything about. Do you have any sense of what that connection there might be? I don't think I have a, a neurologist answer to that, Stephen, if I'm honest. I don't think this is actually a very poorly understood area of, of behavior. It's quite a complex behavior, despite how simple it might seem to perform. But the, the neurological uh, social functions of it are, are, are very poorly understood. So I'm afraid I can't put a neurologist hat on <laughs> for that question. But I wonder if we do it partly when we feel that we lack power, any power to immediately change the situation in any other way. And the sense of historical injustice or a child whose parents have completely laid down the law and decided they can't watch another hour of YouTube. You know, there's they have no recourse left to immediately signal their distress so potentially that's it it's potentially a uh, the last bastion of what we have to offer to solve a very painful situation it's it is like the the only act left when you feel utterly powerless isn't it and yet it's an act that is almost involved like i can't choose to have water come out of my eyes i'm not one of those actors right so it's like the last act left to me in an, it, when I have no power left is still something that I have no power over. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Maybe that's maybe that's why it has such a powerful signal to us. I mean, when we see people crying, we immediately understand there's a level of distress that's quite extreme, don't we? So perhaps, perhaps in our own, perhaps it allows us empathy as well. So in learning to cry and experiencing crying, and, and being in that place of, of powerlessness and sort of final cry for help or yeah. cry for distress, we also learn to see that in others as we, on some instinctual level, understand that they are also at the limit of their resources. They have, you know, they're in distress and have no recourse other than to, to shed a tear. Because we, we cry when other people cry, don't we? We join in in that experience. Uh, it triggers that same level of distress and it's an em empathic process to, to join in and crying as well, isn't it? Have you ever looked at, I don't know, brain scans? Have you ever looked at images of, of a healthy person crying? Well, there's lots, there, there, there are lots of studies that have looked for evidence of which parts of the brain are not functioning properly to, to, to give rise to this. And the truth be told, almost every area of the brain that you care to look at, you can find involved in crying. So something that seems childish to us or something that seems like such a simple human uh, action 
actually involves huge parts of the brain. Uh, most of the brain is involved in some aspects of it from the basic control of the muscles through to connecting the emotional attachment to those movements and then through to coordinating and regulating the social context of, of when it's appropriate or inappropriate. So a wide variety of conditions can give rise to pathological crying because many parts of the brain, if, if they become dysfunctional, are no longer able to contribute to this widespread circuit of control. So there's not really one brain centre for crying. It's really a, a widely distributed uh, whole brain function. You know, it's not a simple process for the brain to coordinate. What would happen to the human body if it didn't cry? I don't think anything, nothing bad would come to the body, but I suppose as a, a social creature, we would we would lose out on that means of expression, wouldn't we? How would we show such distress? Uh, how could we empathise? You know, sometimes shedding a tear and, and empathy is, is all you can or, or need to do with someone who's really struggling. I think so. I think it's a powerful tool at a very high social level, uh, but it doesn't it doesn't perform a basic physiological function certainly. Right. So it's not clearing out a system. It's not it's not like saliva or mucus. It's not kind of cleaning any tear duct or anything like that. It cleans the soul. Yeah, crying crying cleans the soul. Yeah, I think it does. I think it does. I think the function is, uh, I think the main function of crying as social creatures is to allow us to express a deep level of distress that we feel otherwise little immediate control over. And also to allow us to really empathise. Very occasionally with patients who are in distress like that, I have shed a tear involuntarily. And sometimes you are left in those situations wondering was it the right thing to do do people people don't want to come to their doctor and see their doctor crying um but i think occasionally when that's happened it has been the right thing because it allows you to enter into something of the experience with the the patient and they feel less alone so i think from my own experience of how i cry in that situation i can say that i think crying really allows us to empathize with a, a, a profoundly deep level of distress. For... And that is the function. I keep asking about the function, but that is it, isn't it? It's that high and deep social function of empathy. I think we would be we would be on our own, wouldn't we? We would be individuals entirely. Suppose crying connects us. Laughter connects us in, in happy moments, in joyful moments. And I think crying connects us to the deepest, saddest moments. It's clear there are healthy and unhealthy forms of crying. It's also apparent that crying has a deep sociological, anthropological meaning to it. To explore deeper this issue of the phenomenon of white tears and the cultural significance attached to them, I sought out the voices of experts who have been spending a lot of their career thinking very specifically about the construction of whiteness and how it acts upon the world. 
I'm Bradley Onishi. I have faculty at the University of San Francisco and co-host of the Straight White American Jesus podcast and the author of the forthcoming book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. When I hear the phrase white tears, uh, you know, how does that make me feel? What does that what does that make me think? It's interesting. The first thought I have when I when I hear white tears is is of white people crying over things that are making them feel uncomfortable or in their minds and their bodies threatened or something else. So white tears to me in in the first instance evokes a very privileged class of people who are used to that privilege and all of a sudden having it either pointed out or having some of that privilege uh, revoked in the name of equality for for others uh, in their communities. And so white tears evokes for me this idea that one would cry over what we might call the proverbial spilled milk that uh, you no longer uh, just get to sort of uh, exist without uh, any check on uh, your privilege and on on the ways that it, uh, it 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 impedes on other people's lives and and their rights and their representation and so on and so forth. It also, to me, recalls like the very what I think of as the very fragile nervous system that develops in the white body. And here's what I mean by that: is as a white person. I think that your nervous system is often conditioned out. This is obviously not everybody and it's not every person, but I think there's a, a, if you are read as white in society, if you walk into a room and people uh, read you that way, if you are used to identifying as a white person, that your nervous system is conditioned to uh, think of certain people, certain events, certain happenings, certain sounds and noises, certain smells, as threatening, as dangerous, as uncomfortable. And, oh no, like, am I in a bad neighborhood? Oh no. What's that smell from that restaurant that I'm not used to? Oh no. What are these clothes? And what is this way of life? And what is this music? It sounds loud or different, or I'm not sure what to make of it. So I'm frightened. And if you, if you approach me or something, even in the slightest way goes wrong, I may feel like my life's in danger and I need to cry or run away or uh, or call the police. And so that's what I think of in the very first instance when somebody says white tears. What about the tears of the, the kind of liberal guilt? Like, so the person who's not scared, they're genuinely remorseful. The white privileged person who is who is genuinely feeling the injustice of the situation. What about those kind of white tears? Have you encountered those before? What do you do with those? Yeah. So when we think of white tears uh, coming from someone who is a white person and who is being confronted with historical injustice or the marginalization of a people group or violence against uh, someone of uh, another race, uh, a black or indigenous person, a person of color, those white tears to me, uh, a couple things come to mind. One is I don't think that they should be condemned and I don't think that they should be uh, something that we make fun of people for that that's an expression of genuine emotion at being confronted with uh, injustice of uh, of persecution of marginalization and so on. What's more important to me is the response. It, it's the tears are really it, just a genuine expression of being moved, and I don't think that there's a reason to make fun of that or to and so, somehow uh, try to suppress that. I think what's really important then is. Okay, so how do you respond? Is the response to uh, forget about it an hour later? 
is the response to think that, oh, wow, I just learned about this. So I should now put the burden on people of color and black and indigenous people or women or, or trans folks to teach me because I just learned about it. So it's now your job. Please uh, enlighten me, you know, and, and, and make me understand something uh, that uh, I'm putting on you as your responsibility. Are the tears performative? Are you trying to, uh, to, to drum up that emotion in order to signal that you are one of the good white people? You know, that, that's, that is an issue. So that's what I think of when I think of tears coming from someone who's, who's facing something that, that uh, they now, they realize is unjust, it's causing emotion, and uh, there's a kind of sense of liberal guilt. You know, have I had the experience of an audience crying as I'm speaking about white supremacy or the marginalization of, of black, indigenous, or people of color? I have, uh, and so I should say that I'm a mixed race person. My, my father's Japanese American and my mother's uh, is white. And so I feel like I've experienced this in, in a, a kind of dynamic set of ways. Uh, in one sense, I have taught classes and I've given presentations on the internment or the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. The amount of people in the United States who have never heard of this history and who have gotten very emotional learning about it for the first time uh, has been something I've experienced on numerous occasions. I've also had the experience of being on the other side because my family emigrated from Japan to Hawaii at the turn of the 19th century. So my uh, about 1900, you know, there have been family members there since then. So long history there, a lot of history of, of Asia, uh, people of Asian descent, you know, moving to Hawaii, being promised uh, riches from white plantation owners. However, like being so acquainted with and intimate with the history of Hawaii means being acquainted with and intimate with the history of the Hawaiian people and, and realizing that it's very complicated to think of Hawaii as this, in many ways, origin story for me and my family, and yet for that being incredibly complicated as it comes to the Native Hawaiian people and their existence. I've seen this on, on numerous sides and, and from numerous angles, and it's, it's difficult every time. So if, if someone's feeling these white tears of frustration, you know, what can they do that's productive? And I think what I've seen is in the classroom that this can be, uh, this can be really productive and very generative. I used to teach a class called uh, Race, Religion, Resistance uh, at Skidmore College, and Skidmore's up in, in upstate New York. And that course was usually about 15 people, and it was usually like seven or eight people of color, including uh, four or five uh, Black Americans. What would happen is, over the course of the semester, those students would naturally gravitate towards one another, because as we spoke about race and, and religion in the history of the United States, they had shared experiences, and they would often kind of uh, congregate and make new connections and, and talk outside of class about their experiences growing up in New York City or, or anywhere else. And the white students would often have a completely different experience because for them, this was all new material. It wasn't something they'd lived. It was something that they were learning about for the first time when we read James Baldwin or we read you know, histories of lynching or we read about uh, the internment of Japanese Americans and, and so on and so forth. And for them, it was a much different process. It wasn't, hey, let's, let's collaborate and share about our experiences. It was, I didn't know any of this and I don't know what to do now. I didn't know any of this. And I now uh, feel like I have to kind of confront this. And so I, to me, the, the steps that I see are very helpful are, 
determined to learn as much as you can. And don't put that learning on your Black, Indigenous, or people of color friends. There are so many great books that have been written by Black and Indigenous and, and other people of color that you can read. It's your responsibility. Go do it. Lean into the discomfort. You're going to be uncomfortable. And you're going to have to, probably for the first time, realize what it means to exist within the category of whiteness. That's uncomfortable because something that was invisible and something you never saw before is now something you're going to see all the time. And it's, it's going to be disorienting. And guess what? That is healthy. Sometimes when we're uncomfortable, it's because our body's like, something's wrong. Please go to the doctor. You need to fix that. Sometimes when we're uncomfortable, it's because we've activated muscles or parts of ourselves that haven't been activated a long time. And they're kind of sore and not used to that, but it's actually kind of a good thing. To me, this form of discomfort is that is the latter case. Learn, lean in, and then just ask yourself, how can I contribute, right? How, how can I uh, do something that will be in some way productive? And how, uh, here's the final part. How can I do something that will be productive that doesn't center me? right? How can I contribute without becoming the center? How can I contribute without putting the spotlight on me? How can I contribute without doing it in order to say, well, look at me. I'm one of the good whites. Okay. That is not helpful. My friend, Tori Williams Douglas has a great program called white homework. So if you want a guide, go find Tori Williams Douglas. She has a great program called white homework podcast, readings, assignments. Uh, you, you get to meet with Tori and talk to her. Uh, that's amazing. That's an amazing thing. White homework. Uh, Jamar Tisby has a great book out called The Color of Compromise. Uh, we could go on down the line in terms of what's out there to, to learn and read. Uh, but I, I think the biggest part is not a lack of resources. It's how much have you investigated in order to actually find the resources and to do the work. the idea of sentimentality as the end of white tears, right? And, and so, the, you know, if, if we think about white tears as an expression of sentiment and not the beginning of a journey of learning and leaning in and contributing and decentering whiteness, but as the, oh, wow, look at that. I cried and I, uh, we can still make our dinner reservation in that show we wanted to go to and great, let's go. To me, the, the best examples of, of this kind of sentimentality are movies that really tell the story of a kind of a racial injustice with a white protagonist who comes to some sort of transformation, helps out a, uh, a marginalized person who's undergoing racial injustice or some other kind. And in the end, there's a nice resolution. Uh, you really stick it to the man, the racist old guy in the town is thwarted and everybody smiles and there's a sense of peace and harmony. And what that kind of story does is it really allows the person watching to say, wow, I went through it. I, I hurt. I empathized. I cried. And then it got resolved. Whew, I feel better. I'm walking out of the theater. I feel like I want to go get that, that cocktail for a nightcap. And I'm just glad we fixed that, right? To me, that's the really negative side of sentimentality and why it actually, why those kinds of works are actually really counterproductive to, to actually uh, decentering whiteness and, and helping folks reckon with the histories of white, of, of white supremacy and white Christian supremacy. So how do white tears relate to 
you know, white Christian nationalism, my first thought is that it's, it's usually the, the first kind of white tears. And what I mean by the first kind of white tears is crying over feeling threatened or a perceived threat. And so I think in the United States, white Christian nationalists are often saying things like, this is not the country I grew up in, or I don't even recognize my country anymore, or this country used to be founded on God and the constitution, but now it's founded on blah, 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 blah. There's always this bemoaning of a, of a lost past. And the tears are really based on nostalgia. They're really based on, we used to have this and now we don't, and I'm upset and I'm hurt. And so I'm going to hang the American flag upside down, or I'm going to uh, use an altered kind of flag. I'm going to uh, put a blue line on it or a red line on it or a green line on it. I'm going to use the flag that has 13 stars to kind of indicate that I'm a real American who, who's really recalling when we were actually a, a God-fearing nation. To me, this is why white Christian nationalists are so into the American flag, because if you can claim the American flag as, as your own, you can claim the entire nation, right? What you're saying is, is the flag is ours. The flag belongs to our movement. The flag belongs to our people, our side. And so if you try to claim it, right, it's going to either fall flat or you're going to or you're going to just be somebody that we laugh at because we're going to say you're not a real american by claiming the american flag we're claiming the entire country i also think it means that if you suggest any change to the social order that the claim is is that you're taking away the life that i was promised and it's again that those tears about a perceived threat when in reality it's tears about the fact that your privilege to live in a social order that is set up and designed to marginalize or oppress others is being taken away. And you see that as somehow a great injustice to yourself. So white tears get weaponized and I'm in the United States. And so I think there's a long history and my friend and colleague, Sarah Mosliner is really the expert on this and has really written about this at, at length as it comes to uh, Christian sexual ethics and uh, white Christian super, uh, supremacy in the United States going back to slavery and especially uh, the, the period after the end of slavery, the after the Civil War, uh, the, the reign of the KKK in the South and uh, across the United States. She has taught me a lot uh, about how white tears are used and weaponized by white women to claim uh, a sense of danger uh, in the face of usually black men of color, you know, black men, but also people of color in general. So white women's tears are used as a symbol for threats against white people, against the social order, against the safety of, uh, of white communities. But there are ways, and Sarah, Sarah's work really shows us this, that white women's tears have been weaponized against people of color. She's, she's great. I mean, you, you, if, you have, if you think you need uh, someone, she, I would reach out to her for sure. Yeah. Hi, my name is Dr. Sarah Mosliner. I'm a lecturer in the Department of Philosophy, Anthropology, and Religion at Central Michigan University. I'm the author of Virgination, Sexual Purity, and American Adolescence, and a new book called After Purity about people who've grown up and out of evangelical purity culture and the way that intersects with white Christian nationalism. 
I do a lot of work around something called intergroup dialogue, where people talk, learn to talk across their differences. And one of the things we talk about is the difference between impact and intent and impact, right? And I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, being a good Christian was all about having the perfect intentions that you had to, with sort of Puritan scrupulosity, search your heart, making sure you were pure of heart so that your intentions were pure, because that's what would make you righteous and holy, okay? So this is so part of our Christian, our white Christian DNA, that we then feel that we are above reproach. So then when people who are not white show up and say, yeah, no, (laughs) you are not above reproach and everything you're doing is rooted in assumptions that you are better than other people. And hey, that could be, you know, that could be xenophobic, that could be racist, that could be any number of things that the good white person is horrified to discover, right, that they are that. And so the result of that is deep discomfort, and in some cases, tears. So then, you know, the manipulation that happens, this is sort of in a one-on-one environment where say I start, uh, so you start crying, right? Because say I'm talking about something like sexual assault and you as a white man start crying and saying, oh, what can we do? This is terrible. And then things are flipped where I then have to offer you comfort, I then have to reassure you that, yes, you are a good person. You are the exception to the thing I am talking about, right? Now, there's a couple things going on here. One is, I think, the narcissism that we were indoctrinated into as white Christians, that we will we will always be correct. We will always be pure and holy. And anyone who challenges that needs to be silenced, represents some evil force. We see this rhetoric, especially in places like the Southern Baptist Church right now, especially around critical race theory, right? This is what's happening in mass is that white people are being told things that make them question their goodness. And whoa, the backlash has been fierce. I mean, we have laws on the books now saying you can't make white people uncomfortable, right? Because this is what will happen. And it's over, it's 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 just incredible to see it happen in such a on such a large scale. The other piece about this is that, um, and this is also what white evangelical Christianity does, is it's rooted in hyper-individualization. It's about my soul, your soul, right? What we do as individuals in the world. Um, And one of the things white evangelicals are socialized into, as are many white Americans in the United States, is colorblindness, And the idea and colorblindness assumes that racism is all about the individual. It's not about systemic and structural injustice, which is what people are having a really hard time with. So everything, every critique of racism is personal, 
when in fact, no, it's about becoming aware of how you function within these larger systems, how you might benefit from them, also how you might, you know, be struggling against them. I mean, everyone's all tied up in these systems of privilege and oppression. And while we focus a lot on experiences of oppression and white evangelicals seem to be really good at that, that they love to put themselves in the category of the oppressed when in and 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 that's sort of a tool of you know part of the colonial logics at work here that the that the people who are in fact in power are really oppressed this is also i mean you know listening to the rhetoric of trump this was one of his specializations and and so people who work in you know mental health care talk about the way that especially a narcissistic personality is going to reverse victim and offender a characteristic of of manipulation of a manipulative personality and uh and i think that is something that is part of white racial identity that it's something that because white racial identity has just been this cancer that has grown because of the way it was structured i mean it was at the very beginning it was started as a way to designate the superior group so it's always been that. What white supremacy does is it emphasizes intention and de-emphasizes impact. And so I think the call now that I'm hearing more and more clearly from more white people, I think people of color and other sort of subaltern groups have, I've always said this, but saying, start with those who are impacted. (laughs) What is the impact of them? So here's a law, the war on drugs, that is completely free of language about race. Five years later, mass incarceration of men of color skyrocket, of, of all people, of people of color, skyrockets. The intention was not to recreate a Jim Crow type scenario. And this is Michelle Alexander's argument, but that was the impact. White people are very bad at humility and being like, oh, that was, we made a mistake. And this is, of course, why diversity and representation matter so that uh, other people can say, okay, look, this is what's going to happen if you do this. This is where you're talking about race without talking about race. continue our conversation with Dr. Mosliner, looking specifically at the construction of white women's tears. And as we bring in the voice of Dr. Lisa Sharon Harper, author, activist, and viral video celebrity on the theme of white women and their tears.
Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.